0: What a good morning for us to be together, to fellowship together, to sing praise to the Lord together, and to uh, encourage one another to rest in Him. And uh, what wonderful reminders. I'm so thankful for our uh, worship team and for our AV team that work diligently every week for us to be able to come together and and to uh, have a good environment for us to worship in and for Uh, our safety and security team that works every Sunday uh, to serve and care well uh, for our church family. Uh, And so when you see those folks, give them a word of thanks. And uh, just as we pray through the week, pray for them as they prepare each week to lead us and serve so well. Uh, We are so blessed as a church family with so many people that serve in so many ways. And we're reminded by that uh, as we come to this part of the new church year Uh, Last Sunday night we started our new Awana semester and uh, we started children's choirs this week on Wednesday night and university classes and that our Saudi Daisy campus started a new thing for children called Club 316 and so uh, all the volunteers are back in place and I was just reminded this week of all the people who serve diligently each week to take such good care of this church family and uh, we are so grateful for them. Uh, Let me invite you this morning to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 40, and as you open your Bible, go ahead and buckle your seatbelt, because we've got two chapters to cover this morning, and I want to do my best to cover them well and and efficiently, uh, but at the same time to uh, take great care to not uh, feel like we're rushing through the Scripture. We don't want to rush through the text. Uh, That's why we open our Bibles at this time because the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us and we don't want to rush through him revealing himself to us in his word because we want to come and not just learn about uh, Joseph or some other characters that we're introduced to in this part of the context of the narrative. But I want us to focus in and, and sort of slow roll past this large chunk of text so that we can glean some truths about God and about ways that we can be encouraged, particularly in our suffering. Remember, we're talking about uh, suffering, looking at the life of Joseph and things that we can learn about these dual truths of God's sovereignty and our suffering. And in Genesis chapter 40 and 41... We've seen in the prior chapters God's sovereignty at work, but now as this narrative is about to take a very dramatic turn in Joseph's life, for circumstantially the better, we're about to see some loose ends be tied up and God's sovereignty on full display. And so I want to go back and look at some of the context of these two chapters. When we last left Joseph, he had been falsely accused and thrown into prison uh, by Potiphar, uh, his master in the house. And remember, we looked at the book ended truths in chapter 39 that God is with Joseph, and God is with Joseph. When he goes to to prison, the the chief jailer puts him in charge of everything. We find that that the Lord was with him. Then in chapter 40, we pick up the text as we look at some of the context that we see here. I want to move through part of this narrative so we can be introduced to some of the new players in the narrative, if you will. And then it came about, after these things, that the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. And then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, two were confined in the jail, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream and each man with its own interpretation. And so here in the first five verses of chapter 40 we're given the context of this next part of the narrative, that Joseph's still in prison, the Lord is still with him, he's still being given favor, and now there's two other people who are put in confinement with him, and and it's almost as if the chief jailer just sort of puts him under Joseph's care because that's Joseph's job. And they both have a dream. Now, you'll note that In the first dream that Joseph has, back in the earlier part of the narrative, we're not told that God gave him the dream, but it's sort of left to be implied because of what comes in the next 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. And here we're not told that God gave them the dreams, but that they had dreams, but it's sort of implied in the text. I make point of that to note because what's going to come in the chapter 41 is specifically said. But we believe, and we've got no reason to think otherwise from the context and the implications of the text and the things that happen from the text, that things that happen in dreams ultimately are fulfilled, that God is the giver of all of these dreams. In Joseph's dreams, now in these people in prison, and ultimately in Pharaoh's, that God gives these things. And so when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. And then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me Please. And so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches, and it was budding, and the blossoms came out, and the clusters produced ripe grapes. And now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of the three branches. They are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. You may want to pay particular attention to verse 14. Interpretations belong to God. But please tell it to me. He gives him an interpretation, but he says, Now just do me this kindness. When this happens, hear the confidence in his voice. When this happens, when you're restored unto Pharaoh, please do me a kindness and remember me and get me out of this place. Remember, God is with him, God's given him favor. But if you're the favorite prisoner in prison, you're still where? In prison. Through this whole part of the context, He's still, even though he's got God's favor and has had God's favor in all of these places and he's been put in positions that, that are favorable but when you're a slave in a house, even if you're the favorite slave, you're still a slave and if you're a favorite prisoner in prison, you're still in prison. So we have some insight here in verse 14. Joseph would really rather not be there. So remember me. When this happens, remember me and get me out of here. For in, I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here i 've done nothing that they should put me into this dungeon. And when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, "I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. He got a good interpretation. I, can't, I eagerly tell him mine and being a baker, he 's got baskets of bread on his head, so please tell me. And in the top basket, there were some all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the baskets. On my head. And 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 I, I want to guess a little bit here, but it's almost like there's an eagerness in his telling of, of his dream, of it turned out well for him. So tell me that how in three days the, the Pharaoh is gonna restore me unto my role. If you've read this before, you know it takes a dramatic turn here for the baker. Then Joseph said, This is the interpretation of three baskets or three days. I feel like he's like, Yes, and Three days, three assets. I get it. I see a theme going here. And Pharaoh will lift up your head, not just lift up your head and restore. You know, he'll lift up his head from you. If there was a if there was a, a, a musical background right here, it may go bum bum bum. Lift head, lift up your head from you and we'll hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Notice he didn't request anything of the baker. It's nothing to request. In three days, it's, you can't help me. And it came about on the third day, which was the Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to him. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Verse 14. Keep me in mind... End of the the chapter, Joseph's forgotten. Chapter 41, verse 1. Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. I say all of this part of the context here to get us some introduction to new characters and also to give us another time stamp. Joseph was 17 when he was kidnapped and sold. Some time has passed in his suffering. And after giving the interpretation and giving the request to the cupbearer, now two more years have passed. We have some more of the context. And as we look at these events that happen in Joseph's life, we're going to see some ways that God displays his sovereignty by giving Joseph insight God displays his sovereignty by giving Joseph insight. Way back in the beginning part of the narrative, God gave Joseph insight into what was coming through Joseph's own dreams. Remember the the sheaves and the stars? Remember all those bowing down? And the brothers and the fathers saying, are we going to bow down to you? And... The brothers hated him even more, but if you remember, there's this little verse that's sort of wedged into the text that that Joseph's father took note of these things and, and treasured them and kept them. In all of this time, Joseph is acting and living and behaving and reacting as one who has been given some insight into what's coming through these dreams. So God gives Joseph insight by sovereignly putting these dreams in him as he slept so that he could see what was coming. So we see that in Joseph's life in the beginning part of the narrative. And now we come, he's not just dealing with his own dreams, but now he's got the dreams of the, uh, the, the cupbearer and the baker, the prisoner's dreams here in chapter 40. And he says, that all, all interpretations belong to God. So tell them to me. And so God gives Joseph insight into the dreams of other people. Not because Joseph's so good at interpreting dreams, because Joseph readily recognizes all of these interpretations come from God. So you, you tell them to me and, and I'll give them to you, but God is the one who gives them to me. And with wonderful accuracy... To the time and to the events, Joseph interprets the dreams for the two prisoners. And as we move into chapter 41, we see at the end of two full years that the Pharaoh himself had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile, and low from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed upon the marsh grass, and Behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. And then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. And then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And then Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled and so he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men and Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in the confinement of the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker and we had a dream on the same night. He and I, Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And now a Hebrew Hebrew youth was there, or was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams to us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened, and so he restored me to my office, but he hanged him. And then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard that it is said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. The stage is set. Verse 14 of the previous chapter, get me out of this dungeon. He wants out. He's got the ear of Pharaoh He knows what he's been told back in the earlier portions of the narrative. And he's got the ear of Pharaoh. He's got the attention. He's got the stage in front of him. The the publicity that's come before him is that he's the man with the answers. And he comes in in this part of the text where he's got the opportunity to exalt himself himself. And in verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, as we move forward through the text, we're going to see that Joseph gives the interpretation. God displays his sovereignty. Now, it makes sense. It makes sense that way back in the earlier part of the narrative, for God to speak to a God follower through a dream, There's no reference, and there's no cultural expectation that the baker or the cupbearer would be a God follower. But yet God puts dreams in their mind. Pharaoh is not a God follower. He views himself to be God, but yet God exercises his sovereignty by giving Pharaoh these dreams and we see as the, as, the, as the passage moves through and Joseph gives the, determina- gives the interpretation. If you look in verse 25, it says, Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. Joseph puts the sovereignty of God on full display through the insight that he's given, recognizing Pharaoh, you didn't muster these things up. God put the one true God, put these things in you to show you what he's about to do. They're not just some random things. You didn't eat something wrong. The one true God has declared to you what he is about to do. God's sovereignty on full display through the insight that he gives Joseph. By giving these dreams and giving Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams. And as we've seen in this text, Joseph displays God's sovereignty by giving God credit. And I told you last week I didn't like one of the words. I don't like this one either. But I can't find a better one. Joseph at no place in this text exalts himself with the ability to interpret dreams. Go back and look in in his dreams and he merely tells what happened go back and look in chapter 40 verse 8 like we saw just a moment ago when he's talking to the two prisoners we've had a dream and there's no one to interpret it then Joseph said to them do not interpretations belong to God can't find anyone to interpret it because no one's listening to God jump ahead into the life of Pharaoh he's called all the magicians and everyone else they got no idea because if God is the one who's bringing the interpretations, God's not speaking through magicians. He's speaking through his little guy that got forgotten. So we see Joseph displaying God's sovereignty by giving God credit for what God is doing. We saw just a moment ago in 41 verse 16. He's got the ear, he's got the eye, he's got the stage. It's not me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer there in 41 Verse 16. not me verse 25 again pharaoh's dreams are one of the same god has told pharaoh what he is about to do and then as we move through the text talking about the seven years of abundance and seven years of famine if you look down in verse 31 so abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine it will be very severe now as for the repeating of the dream to pharaoh twice it means that the matter is determined by god and god will bring it about quickly Chapter 41, verse 32. The matter's determined. A few verses before, God has told you what he's about to do. And he's given it to you twice. And so the fact that he repeated himself tells me it's determined. And the determination and the execution of the matter, this is what's coming. And not only... As we see between verse 32 and verse 33, does Joseph declare to Pharaoh that God has determined the matter and it's already going to happen, so get ready for it. Then he begins to unfold a plan for him about how the people should get ready, how he and the people should get ready. Verse 33, now let Pharaoh look for a man, discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land in Egypt in, this, in the seven years of abundance. Let them all gather the food of these good years so that, they, so that years that are coming and store up grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it and let the food become as a reserve for the land of the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. I want you to catch the boldness That happens in these few verses. Word has it that you can interpret dreams. I can't interpret dreams. Well, God will give you the interpretation. He tells him the dream. This is what God has said. God's told you what He's going to do. In fact, He's repeated it twice. It's determined. It's going to happen. There's a confidence, not in himself, but in God, in Joseph's response. But then he goes a step further and answers a question that Pharaoh didn't ask. So let Pharaoh find a man who's discerning and wise. The implication almost here is that, Pharaoh, you can't do this. You need some help here. So find this guy and put this plan in place and, and store up things during the time of plenty so there'll be plenty in, in time of need. <laughs> Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one so discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, bow the knee and set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt." amazing how quickly things trend for the better in Joseph's life in this text. If all we do is read it from chapter 37 to here. Remember two weeks ago we said it takes about 22 minutes to read those chapters at some reasonable sense of pace but from chapter 37 to two years into the famine that 22 years pass. There's been a minute that's happened since Joseph had his first dream in here. And up until this point, all the trending is in the midst of trial. He's kidnapped. He's abandoned in a pit. He's rescued from the pit only to be sold into slavery. He's rescued from slavery, put in a position of favor in Potiphar's house, only to be falsely accused and thrown into prison. And he's put in prison and given favor in prison only to interpret dreams and then be forgotten for two more years. And then he automatically, it seems, has an audience with Pharaoh and points Pharaoh to the one true God. I can't give you the interpretation, but God will. And God has shown you what he's about to do and he's repeated it twice so he's determined what's going to happen and here's the way that you can save your people. Even Pharaoh recognizes it's not Joseph. Is there a man in Egypt like this who has the presence of a divine spirit? He recognizes it's not this guy they just brought up from prison but that this God he's talking about seems to be at work in him. And so I will put you second in charge of, of the world. And here's my signet ring. Culturally, we need to catch what that knows. That's, that's, you give your word, it's like giving my word. And no one will raise a hand or put down a foot in this nation without your say-so. God uses trial to position Joseph. All through this text, if we've read it before, we know how it ends. We know that this is where he ends up, second in charge of of the land of Egypt. But at no point in Joseph's life up to this point would he he have the understanding to think, you know, I'm just going to wait this out because in... In about 20 years, I'm going to be second in charge of Egypt. All he's got is a picture that came from two dreams previous, you know, 20 some, almost 20 years prior. Not that the whole nation of Egypt is going to bow down to him, but just his brothers and his parents. I don't think he's got any concept at that time what's coming 13 chapters later. Now, I can be wrong, but I don't think we've got no indication from the text that he understands that this is what's coming. I'm not trying to speculate. I'm just looking from the text. And at no point up into this place have we ever seen this phrase that, that Joseph stood fast because he knew he was going to run Egypt. We don't have that. What we have is a young man who acted and reacted in the confidence of knowing that God was at work. The young man who acted and reacted in the confidence of knowing that God was with him. We talked about it last week. In the long, slow days of suffering, we've got to lean hard into the character of God. Into God's presence. Into God's faithfulness. Into the trusting that God is indeed at work, even when he uses trial to position Joseph. First of all, he he uses Joseph's trial... I mean, that's what we've been focusing on is what do we learn from God through the life of Joseph? And up until this point, it's been a lot of trial. I mean, a lot. It's like the lion's portion of the text has been wow, this is really hard for Joseph. But then not only does he use Joseph's trial to position him, but he uses Pharaoh's trial. He's troubled. His nation is about to go through famine, and he's got a window of opportunity to prepare for it. And so he uses the the trial that Pharaoh is enduring to position Joseph. And God is ultimately fulfilling his promise that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham that he was going to make him a nation, a father of multitudes. Because if we, if we push on through Genesis on into Exodus, we know that, that when Joseph saves his family, that they hang around for a bit, begin to multiply. By the end of chapter, at the end of book of Genesis, there's a bunch. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, there's a bunch more. And Joseph's gone and there's a Pharaoh who arises that did not know Joseph. Now this mass of people are going to go back home and God exercising his faithfulness to keep his word not merely to Joseph but all the way back to Abraham. God using these trials, these things that are under his sovereign care to position his servant that will enable this process to to unfold that will that we will see God's faithfulness to keep his word all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Because in this text, all the way through it, every part of it, but specifically here we can see where it begins to be on display more predominantly, ultimately in all these things God is glorified. Ultimately in all of these things God is glorified. Let's pick up the text. Then Pharaoh named Joseph, and I've been working for six days to try to say these names. And I can't. So then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphnath paneah If I'm wrong, correct me at the end of the service. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. And now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Timestamp. Whenever you see one of those, take note. How old was Joseph when all this started? 17. Now he's 30. I'm not a math guy, but that's That's doable. Sounds like 13 years to me. Is that accurate, math people? 13 years. 13 years of trial and difficulty. From the favored son to becoming the favored slave, to be the favored prisoner, to now be the favored under Pharaoh, took 13 years. The ultimate goal of this series is that God is glorified and that his people who are enduring trial would be encouraged. As we learn lessons about the character of God from the life of Joseph. Thirteen years. And the trial isn't over. Because we're going to have seven years of plenty, then famine's coming and some more trial is coming. More difficulty is coming and ultimately he's going to confront his brothers if you jump ahead in the text for a week and you're going to see some grieving that comes so just because he's been put in a more comfortable position doesn't mean that the trial is over but 13 years have passed 13 years of hardship And if you know this text, all of these weeks we've been waiting to get to this part because we know it gets better. And there's some light at the end of the tunnel and some of these loose ends begin to be put together and and it's tied into a nice bow on top. And we want our suffering and our trial to end this way. Lessons that we learn about the character of God, about his presence, about his faithfulness, about the fact that he is at work and he is positioning and he is moving and he is exercising his sovereignty. And we want to, in our own trial, get to the end of it so we can see how it all gets put back together and it's all sort of reconciled and it's all nice and neat and tidy. And up until... Genesis chapter 41, the latter third of the chapter, it's not tidy for Joseph. There's nothing about the text that promises that our suffering and our trial will end this tidy. But it is purposeful. Not all suffering is punitive, but it is all purposeful. Consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Let endurance have this perfect result in us, that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is at work. God is present. God is with us. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, He's not merely with us, but He's in us. And so if we're on the backside of a season of trial and we can look back and we we have things in some sort of a bow and we understand some of what God has done and we can recognize that and glorify God in that and we can rest in that and rejoice in it, then enjoy that place. But if you're right in the midst of it, we recognize that nothing in this text has been on fast forward. 13 years, trial, difficulty, suffering, abandonment, being forgotten, falsely accused. But in all those times, God is at work. In all those times, God is present. And Joseph recognizes that as chapter 41 unfolds. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food in these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. And then Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. So we've gone... Almost through seven years, in these three or four verses. Now, before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph from Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, born to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. God has made me forget. God has made me forget. Did forget it happened? Like, oh, I don't remember how I got to Egypt. Of course not. But he's moved. Moved from it. It's not like the events of the last 20 years now have escaped his notice. But it's, he, he's moved from it. God is glorified. He's recognizing that not I've been able to forget these things. God has moved me from them. God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has made me fruitful. God has made me forget. God has made me fruitful. He glorifies God. In the land of his, what? How does he refer to it? In the land of my affliction. And still not home. It's still not home. As God is with us in our suffering, in our trial, we are reminded that this is the land of our sojourn. And that for followers of Jesus, this is not our home. This is not our eternal home. This is temporary. And God does a a, a plethora of wonderful things in this very broken world. But this is indeed the land of our affliction. The land of our sojourning. And we long for the time that as followers of Jesus, that we are returned home. But in this place, in this time, God is faithful, God is present, God is at work. All for him to be glorified. And when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph said, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And so when the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because there was famine. The famine was severe in all the earth. And move into chapter 42. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. Press pause. We'll get to that next week. But in this place, what are we supposed to do? Recognizing that in the midst of trial and suffering, God is sovereignly at work. God is doing things that we can't see and understand. What do we do? We're never told this phrase throughout the text At Joseph's life. That he is patient. But what we see is patience on display. He acts and reacts. Like a young man. Who is wholly committed. And trusting in the fact that God is sovereign. And God is with him. So if we are in the midst of trial. That is long and enduring. We can be patient. We can be patient. And how do we do that? Well, try to be patient. Try harder to be patient. Wrong. Terrible answer. Don't. Don't do that. Take all the effort that you're going to put into trying to be patient and put that into walking closely with Jesus. Because Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. Patience. If you're in the midst of a season of trial and suffering and there seems to be no end and there is no light at the end of the tunnel that you can see, but right there in the darkness where you might be, God is with you. God is at work. And as we walk intimately with Jesus, he develops in us the fruit of the spirit of patience. Confidently resting and trusting and waiting on God to work. Realizing that this is the land of our affliction, and that we will never have perfect circumstances in this place. But yet we serve a perfect God who is perfectly at work to accomplish his perfect will, which is make, to make us more like Christ. And so be patient. Second, be faithful. Joseph's not the main character of this text, but we can learn a couple things from this text about Joseph and things that we can do in the midst of our trial. One of the things that he's patient, another thing, he's faithful. At no place in this text do we hear him say, Lord, I'm done. You don't seem to be working on my timetable, so I'll take it from here. I'm finished. Because I'm in the midst of this hurting. You don't seem to be alleviating my suffering at the rate that I would like for you to. So you clearly don't care. You clearly aren't at work. So I'm, I'm going to take it from here. We don't ever see that. When you get restored to your position, remember me so I can get out of here. And he's forgotten for two years. Who, who 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 did he request that of? Remember, it's open it's open book. We just talked about it like 15 minutes ago. Cupbearer, he's in Pharaoh's court. Joseph's now second in charge under Pharaoh. They would have bumped into one another, and the cupbearer might have said, "Hey, I remembered you." Two years later. any context of that conversation I wish we did what we do have is evidence Joseph displaying patience and faithfulness in the midst of trial and suffering so the lessons that we learn because we serve the same God is that we can be patient we can be faithful and we can trust and rest in God trust and rest in God If you are in the midst of trial, you might be asking some questions of why. Why is God causing this or allowing this? I don't know specifically, but we can know principles from the text of Scripture. That God is at work. That God is always at work in shaping us more into the image of Jesus. That God is indeed good, that God is faithful, God does not abandon his people. God is working for His glory and for our good, and sometimes that comes through trial. And I don't say that in some sort of naivete as one who's never been touched by difficulty or never walked through seasons of trial with people. I don't say that to be dismissive about your pain or your struggle or your hurt. But the goal of this whole series is for us to turn our attention away from our suffering but on to God and to recognize His faithfulness and His goodness and His trustworthiness and to give our view something other than our own struggle. But to think, God, what, not just why are you doing this to me, but what are you doing in me? What are you doing around me for your glory? How are you using this? Knowing that this trial is not just for the sake of me hurting, but that there's something functional and purposeful that ultimately is glorifying to God in it and through it. That in this world we will have trouble, but I give you my peace. Not as the world gives, but as I give to you. Because in the midst of trial, God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is on display and he's good, he's faithful, he's present and we can rest and trust in him for him to fulfill his purpose that works ultimately for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, trial and suffering and difficulty are hard And you are a good, good father. And you do not take some weird joy in seeing your children struggle. Seeing your children suffer and and endure trial. As we talked about in the first week, that sometimes... Trial does come as a result of sinful behavior and sometimes it does come as discipline from you but sometimes it doesn't. It's not always punitive but it is always purposeful and we see that in Joseph's life that it doesn't seem to be disciplinary for him but rather you working to fulfill your promises that you made 30 chapters before. And so Lord, right now for this church family, for, for the people in our family right now that may be going through trial, Lord, will you encourage them? Draw them close to you. Minister to them through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Draw them to intimacy with Jesus through the Spirit and through your word. And Lord, will you give them hope? And Lord, for those in this church family who are in a season of ease, will you help us to love one another well and to bear one another's burdens and in doing so, fulfill the law that you gave us. To love you and to love each other. Recognizing that In all these things, we must be dependent upon you. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you that you are sovereign and nothing in our life is outside of your control. Lord, help us today to rest in you. We love you. We worship you.